0: The major advantage, I think, to 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 making a case very strongly that one of the fundamental realities of life is its suffering, is that it's actually a relief to people to hear that, because they suspect it Well, they know it. But no one's forthright about it. It's like, yeah, life is suffering. OK, fine, so where does that leave us? Well, here's where it leaves us. It turns out that even though life is suffering, if you're sufficiently... Um, Courageous and forthright and honest let's say in your approach and you don't shy away What you'll find is that there's something within you that will respond to the challenge of suffering with the development of Ability that will transcend the suffering. So the pessimism is yeah Well life is rife with problems at every level But the upside is if you turn and confront that voluntarily that you'll find something in yourself that can develop and master that and so The optimism is nested in the pessimism. And that's extremely helpful to people, especially people who are struggling because they think, oh my God, life is so difficult. I don't know if I can stand this. There must be something wrong with me. Does anybody else feel this way? And you can say, yes, everyone feels that way at some time. But that's, and and it is as bad as you think, but you're more than you think you are. You're more than you think you are. And what I really like about this too is it's very much in keeping with the clinical data. So for example, What you do as a clinician, as a clinical psychologist, as a psychiatrist, um, as any mental health professional who's well-trained, is if if people are afraid of something, afraid of something that's standing in their way as an obstacle, like maybe you're trying to develop your career and you're afraid of public speaking, Mm -hmm. well, I could try to calm you down about your fear and, and protect you from the challenge that would be associated with public speaking. You say, well, you never have to do that. Or I could say, no, no, look, You have to learn to present yourself more effectively in public if you're gonna develop your career. And you're afraid of it. So let's break down what you're afraid of into 10 steps or 20 steps until we can find a step that's small enough so that you can actually master it. Let's assume that with three years of diligent practice that you could become a competent public speaker, at least one that isn't terrified. And With five years, you could become an expert. And let's decide how relevant that is to your future prosperity and thriving. And then let's assume that if you break it down properly and take it on step by step in this incremental way that we discussed that you'll actually master every single bit of it. And the thing that's cool about that is all the clinical evidence shows it works. And not only that, that's actually how you learn in life. Like when you're when you're when you bring a child to the playground and the child is apprehensive about making new friends, you say, "Okay, well, look, kiddo. stick around me for a minute or two and just watch what's going on." It's like and the child will calm down and say, "Okay, now go five feet away, just go out there a little bit and just see how it goes and stay out there as long as you can. And if you need to come back for a hug, then no problem. It's like, so then the child can go out 10 feet and they come back You say, okay, well now, you know, maybe just go over there and, and, and watch those kids and the child will go out and then come back. And so that's it. It's the, the child's going out to where they're afraid, seeing that they can master it and then coming back. <coughs> exactly why I think that what I'm talking about is falling on receptive ears is because you actually cannot have a prolonged discussion of rights without having an equally prolonged discussion of responsibilities for a variety of reasons first of all the actual reason that you have rights is so that you can discharge your responsibilities it's not the other way around it's like you're granted rights by everyone around you or or no it's not granted exactly it's part of the part of the The purpose of your rights in some sense is so that you can be given an autonomous space that's protected in which you can manifest what's necessary about you in the world that's a contribution to it. So I have to leave a space for you so that you can make your contribution for yourself, so you can take care of yourself, so that you can shoulder responsibility for your family, and so that you can serve the community the best way that you can. And I don't, I don't want to set up a society that will interfere with that. But then, and then there's the association that we already talked about between res- responsibility and meaning, which yeah. is yeah. absolutely crucial. And so it's, the responsibility element is more important than the rights element as far as I'm concerned, or it certainly is at this point in time. So and people know this. They it, instinctively know it. And yet, the, the, the role of the victim seems, which is a painful role to have, hmm. because something bad happened to you to be a victim. Hmm. But it's something that society struggles with. Hmm. So what about people who feel like they're a victim? They're right. They're victimizers too. Like everybody is a strange mixture of victim and victimizer lots of terrible things happen to people that aren't justifiable in some sense you know well illness strikes people randomly i mean not entirely randomly obviously but there's a very there's a large random element in it where you're thrown into existence as a consequence of your birth that's existentialists especially in the 1950s talked about all that all the time they talked about it as thrownness that you're sort of thrown into reality with your particular set of predispositions and weaknesses and and then there's going to be times in your life where things twist in a manner that's unfair to you that you're not getting your just desserts but that goes along with all sorts of unequally distributed privileges as well and so that's the arbitrary nature of existence and but but you can't allow those sorts of things to define you because it's not, it's not that useful strategically. You're, when you're playing a card game, you're dealt a, you're dealt a hand of cards. Yep. Well, what do you do? You play the hand the best you can. Why? Because all the, all the hands are equal? No, because you don't have a better strategy than playing the hand that you're dealt the best you can. And that doesn't even mean it'll be a winning strategy. But because people don't always win, sometimes we lose and sometimes we lose painfully and sometimes we lose painfully and unjustly. Mm -hmm. That's not the point. The point is you don't have a better strategy and neither does anyone else. And then it's also not so obvious how privilege and victimization are distributed. You know, if you take someone who's doing quite well in life, And you scratch underneath the surface you generally don't have to scratch very far until you find one or more profound tragedies of the past or perhaps of the present no matter how well protected you are in the world you're still subject to illness you're still subject to aging you're still subject to the dissolution of your relationships the death of your dreams death itself so Vulnerability is built into the structure of existence. Now, if you start to regard yourself as a hapless victim or even worse, an unfairly victimized victim, well, then things go very badly sideways for you. It's not a good strategy. You end up resentful, you end up angry, you end up vengeful, you end up hostile. And and that's just the beginning. Things can get far more out of hand than that. So strategically, it's a bad game. It's better to take responsibility for the hand that you've been dealt. Those who have swords and know how to use them but keep, choose to keep them sheathed will inherit the earth. And that's a very, that's a much better idea as far as I'm concerned, because it means that you have a moral obligation to be strong and dangerous, both of those. But to harness that and to use it in the service of good. So it, 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 it's it's associated with a complex set of ideas. If but that, not... Sorry, but that but that principle right there is a, is a stark differentiator of you from much of the material that I read. Mm. Uh, generally, it's purely about compassion. You use the word victimhood, mm. but a lot of folks do feel as a virtue to feel sorry for others because mm. usually behind that is Virtue's I'll do something. not that easy. No. Mm. That's the problem is that we wouldn't have to think if empathy guided us properly, but it doesn't. It guides us properly in some very specific conditions. It can also make us very dangerous because and there's good, there's good experimental literature on this, if you're very sensitive to an in-group's claims, whatever they might be, that makes you very hostile to perceived out-group members. In-group, and out-group, so, people within your tribe or yeah, outside like well, Yeah, Well, within whatever group it is that you're identifying with at that moment. You know, so empathy drives that in-group identification. It's like, okay, well, what about the out-group? Oh, those are predatory. Those are predators. We'd better be hard on them. You know, it's, it's a mother bears compassion that gets you eaten. Huh. So we can't be thinking that empathy is an untrammeled virtue. There's no, there's no evidence for that whatsoever. The psychoanalysts knew this perfectly well as well when we were still wise enough to, to attend to their more profound realizations. And that's the motif of the devouring parent. The devouring mother is, the, is a more general trope. And that's someone who will do absolutely everything for you all the time so that you never have to rely on yourself for anything. That's not good. No, there's rules, for example, if you're dealing with the elderly in an old folks home, here's a rule. Never do anything for one of your clients they can do themselves. Why? Because they're already struggling with the loss of their independence. And you wanna help them maintain that independence as long as possible. And that might mean sitting by while someone struggles to do up their buttons, for example, when you can, and this is the same if you're maybe helping your three-year-old dress themselves. It's like, yeah, yeah, you can put on the buttons a lot faster, let me help you with that. It's like, no, you struggle with that, you master it, and I'll, I'll keep my empathy to myself, thank you very much, so that I can help you maintain your independence. every single person who sets out to put themselves together ethically is a net positive to everyone around them. There's no downside to that. You know, and I, my book has been criticized by people who've read it very poorly, especially chapter one, when I talk about hierarchies, that I'm somehow supporting the idea that power in a hierarchy is the right way to be. And that's there's absolutely nothing in what I've written that suggests that at all. Like I'm suggesting that human hierarchies are very complex and that the way that you win in a human hierarchy is by being competent and reciprocal. And so, and so, I mean, for example, even if you're selfish, let's say, you gotta think very carefully about what that would mean if you were selfish and awake, because you have to work to take care of yourself and what you want, say, in this moment. But then there's you tomorrow and there's you next week, and there's you next month and next year and 10 years from now and when you're old. So because you're self conscious, and because you're aware of the future, you're actually a community unto yourself. And if you're selfish and impulsive, all that means is that you're serving the person you are right now, you know, in that impulsive way, but not the person you're going to be. And so that's not a good grounds for any sort of ethical behavior. And I see that If you serve yourself properly, there's no difference between that and serving your family properly and serving your community properly. Those things all mesh in a kind of a harmonious manner. And one of the things that's really been effective in the lecture tour is a discussion about that idea and its relationship between the relationship between that and meaning and responsibility. Because one of the things that Strikes the audience is silent constantly because I'm always listening to them to see you know when when the attention is maximally focused is whenever I point out to people that the antidote to the meaninglessness of their life and the suffering and the malevolence that they might be displaying because they're resentful and bitter about how things have turned out The antidote to that is to take on more responsibility for themselves and for other people and that that's aspirational which is kind of cool, you know the conservative types the duty types, and I'm not complaining about them, you know, they're always basically saying, well, this is how you should act, because in some sense, that's your duty, right? That's how a good citizen would act. And that's a reasonable argument. But the case that I've been making is more that, well, there is is value distinctions between things. Some things are worth doing and some things aren't, and you can kind of discover what that is for yourself. And then you should aim at the things that are most worth doing. And what you'll find, if you watch carefully, is that the things that you find worth doing are almost always associated with an increase in responsibility. Because if you think about the people you admire, for example, you spontaneously admire people, and that's a manifestation of the instinct to imitate. Again, people are very imitative. You don't admire people who don't take care of themselves. Like, unless there's something wrong with you, you you at least want an admirable person to be accountable for themselves. And then if they've got something left over, so they can be accountable for their family, well, then that's a net plus, obviously, that's someone you think is solid. And then maybe they take care of some more people, they have a business, or they're involved in the community in some positive way. You see, well, that's a person whose pattern of being is worth imitating. And so and that's all associated with responsibility. And it's so interesting, because it's as if it's as if everybody kind of knows this, but that it hasn't crystallized it's like well you should be responsible because that's what a good citizen is it's not no no you should be responsible because you need to have a deep meaning in your life to offset the suffering so you don't get bitter and the way you do that is to bear a heavy load you know to get yourself in in check for you now and for you in the future and then to do the same for your family and your community and that there's real nobility in that and there's real meaning and more the other thing that i've been suggesting to people and i also believe this is that and I think that the guys that have come to talk to me, especially the ones that have had real real rough lives, they really understand this. If you don't get your act together and you let yourself slide, then what kind of moves in to take the place of what you could have been is something that's really not good at all. So it's not only that if you're living a, like a dissolute life, that. You're not aiming at anything positive and so you don't have any real meaning and you're subsumed by anxiety and all of that hopelessness but something kind of hellish moves in there too to to occupy that place and so then you end up making things worse and when you know one of the things i learned about studying totalitarian systems whether they were on the right or the left was that part of the reason that the totalitarian horrors of the 20th century manifested themselves was because average people didn't take on the proper responsibility They shut their eyes when their eyes should have been open, even though they knew it. And they didn't said things they knew they shouldn't have done and said. And that was what supported those horrible systems. So you know, if you don't get your act together, then you leave a little space for hell. And I really believe that. So I figured something out that I thought I'd tell you about. This took me like 30 years to figure out and I figured it out on this tour so there's this old idea you know that you have to rescue your father from the belly of the whale right from some Mm -hmm. monster that's deep in the abyss you see that in pinocchio for example but it's a very common idea and i figured out why that is i think so imagine that we already know from a clinical perspective that you know if you set out a path towards a goal which you want to do because you need a goal and you need a path Mm -hmm. because that provides you with positive emotion right so you you set up something as valuable so that implies a hierarchy you set up something as valuable you decide that you're going to do that instead of other things so that's kind of a sacrifice because you're sacrificing everything else to pursue that and then you experience a fair bit of positive emotion and meaning as you watch yourself move towards the goal and so the implication of that is the the better the goal the 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 more full and rich your experience is going to be when you pursue it. So that's one of the reasons of, of that's one of the reasons for developing a vision and for fleshing yourself out philosophically because you want to aim at the highest goal that you can manage. Okay, so you do that. And then what you'll find is that as you move towards the goal, there are certain things that 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 you have to accomplish that frighten you. You know maybe you have to learn to be a better speaker a better writer a better thinker you have to be better to people around you or you have to learn some new skills and you're afraid of that whatever because it's going to stretch you if you if you pursue a goal and it's and so that'll put you up against challenges okay so all the clinical data indicates well the opposite of safe spaces as jonathan Haidt has been pointing out that what you want to do when you identify something that someone is avoiding that they need to do because they're afraid you have them voluntarily, con- voluntarily confronted, and so you break it down. What you try to do, if you're a behavior therapist, is you break down the thing they're avoiding into smaller and smaller pieces until you find a piece that's small enough so they'll do it. And it doesn't really matter as long as they start it. You know, then they can put the next piece on and the next piece. And what happens is, they don't get less afraid. Exactly, they get braver. They get. They get. It's like there's more of them. And you can. And, and here's why. So imagine, you do something new. And that's informative, right? There's information in the action and then you can incorporate that information and turn it into a skill and turn it into a transformation of your perceptions. So there's more to you because you've tried something new. So that's one thing. But the second thing is, and there's good biological evidence for this now that if you put yourself in a new situation, then new genes code for new proteins and build new neural structures and new nervous system structures same thing happens to some degree when you work out right because your your muscles are responding to the load but your nervous system does that too so you imagine that there's a lot of potential you locked in your genetic code and then if you put yourself in a new situation then then the stress that's the situational stress that's produced by that particular situation unlocks those genes and then builds new parts of you and so that's very cool because who knows how much there is locked inside of you. Okay, so now here's the idea. So let's assume that that scales as you take on heavier and heavier loads. That more and more of you, you get more and more informed because you're doing more and more difficult things, but more and more of you gets unlocked. And so then what that would imply is that if you got to the point where you could look at the darkest things, so that would be the abyss, right? That would be the deepest abyss. If you could look at the harshest things, like the most brutal parts of the suffering of the world and the malevolence of people and society, if you could look that, look at that, straight and and directly, that that would turn you on maximally. And so that's the idea of rescuing your father, because imagine that you're like the potential composite of of all your all the ancestral wisdom that's locked inside of you biologically but that's not going to come out at all unless you stress yourself unless you unless you challenge yourself and the bigger the challenge you take on the more that's going to turn on and so that as you take on a broader and broader range of challenges and you push yourself harder then more and more of what you could be turns on and that's equivalent to transforming yourself into the ancestral father into all because you're you're like the what would you call it you're the consequence of all these living beings that have come before you and that's all part of your biological potentiality and then if you can push yourself then all of that clicks on and that turns you into who you could be that's and that's the re-representation of that positive ancestral father so that's why you rescue your father from the belly of the beast The two major problems that people face, obviously, are suffering, tragedy, and malevolence. And so that's the other thing that you're responsible for, is that you're supposed to look at the capacity for human evil as clearly as you possibly can, which is a very terrifying thing. You know That causes post-traumatic stress disorder in people that aren't accustomed to it. And in the mythology that's associated with the encounter with evil, it's almost always the case that the entity that does the encountering, even if it does it voluntarily, is 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 hurt by it. So the Egyptian god Horus, for example, who's the eye and the falcon, the thing that can see and pay attention. When he encounters his evil uncle, Seth, who's the precursor of Satan, he loses an eye. Because it's no joke to encounter malevolence. You know, it, it can really shake you. But the idea would be that if you can face the malevolence and you can face the suffering, then that maximally... That opens the door to your maximal potential. And then the, op- the optimistic part of that is, and this is, this is why it's so useful to peer into the darkness, let's say, the op- optimistic part of that is is that although the suffering is great and the malevolence is, is deep, your capacity to transcend it is stronger. thing I've often asked my undergraduate classes is, you know, there's this idea that that people have that people have a conscience. And you know what the conscience is. It's, It's this feeling or voice you have in your head just before you do something that you know is stupid, telling you that probably you shouldn't do that stupid thing. You don't have to listen to it, strangely enough but you go ahead and do it anyways. And then uh, of course exactly what the conscience told you was going to happen inevitably happens, <laughs> so that you feel even stupider about it than you would if it happened by accident. Cause you, you know, I knew this was going to happen. I got a warning it was gonna happen and I went and did it anyways. And the funny thing too is that that conscience operates within people and we really don't understand what the hell that is. So you might say, well, what would happen if you abided by your conscience for five years or for 10 years? What sort of position might you be in? What sort of family might you have? What sort of relationship might you be able to forge? And you can be bloody sure that a relationship that's forged on the basis of who you actually are is going to be a lot stronger and more welcome than one that's forged on the basis of who you aren't. Now, of course, that means that the person you're with has to deal with the full force of you in all your ability and your catastrophe and that's a very very difficult thing to negotiate but if you do negotiate it well at least you you have something you have somewhere solid to stand and you have somewhere to live you have a real life and it's a great basis upon which to bring children into the world for example because you can have an actual relationship with them instead of torturing them half to death which is what happens in a tremendous a tremendously large minority of cases well, it's more than that too, because, and this is what I'll close with, and this is why I wanted to introduce Solzhenitsyn's writings to you, you see, because it isn't merely that your fate depends on whether or not you get your act together and to what degree you decide that you're going to live out your own genuine being. It isn't only your fate. It's the fate of everyone that you're networked with. And so, you know, you think, well, There's nine billion, seven billion people in the world. We're going to peak at about nine billion, by the way, and then it'll decline rapidly, but seven billion people in the world, and who are you? You're just one little dust moat among that seven billion. And so it really doesn't matter what you do or don't do, but that's simply not the case. It's the wrong model because you're at the center of a network. You're a node in a network. Of course, that's even more true now that we have social media. You'll you'll know a thousand people at least over the course of your life. And they'll know a 1,000 people each. And that puts you one person away from a million, and two persons away from a billion. And so that's how you're connected. And the things you do, they're like dropping a stone in a pond. The ripples move outward, and they affect things in ways that you can't fully comprehend. And it means that the things that you do and that you don't do are far more important than you think. if you can teach people to stand up in the face of the things they're afraid of, they get stronger. And you don't know what the upper limits to that are, because you might ask yourself, like if for 10 years, if you didn't avoid doing what you knew you needed to do by, the def, by your own definitions, right? Within the value structure that you've created to the degree that you've done that, what would you be like? Well, you know, there are remarkable people who come into the world from time to time. And there are people who do find out over Decades long periods what they could be like if they were who they were if they said if they spoke their being forward And they'd get stronger and stronger and stronger and we don't know the limits to that We do not know the limits to that and so you could say well in part perhaps the reason that you're suffering unbearably Can be left at your feet because you're not everything you could be and you know it and of course that's a terrible thing to admit, and it's a terrible thing to consider, but there's real promise in it, right? Because it means that perhaps there's another way that you could look at the world and another way that you could act in the world. So what it would reflect back to you would be much better than what it reflects back to you now. And then the second part of that is, well, Imagine that many people did that, because we've done a lot as human beings, we've done a lot of remarkable things. And I've told you already, I think before that today, for example, about 250,000 people will be lifted out of abject poverty and about 300,000 people attached to the electrical power grid. We're making people, we're lifting people out of poverty collectively at a faster rate that's ever occurred in the history of humankind by a huge margin. And that's been going on unbelievably quickly since the year 2000. The UN had pl- planned to have poverty between 2000 and 2015, and it was accomplished by 2013. So there's inequality developing in many places, and you hear lots of political agitation about that. But overall, the the tide is lifting everyone up, and that's a great thing. And we have no idea how fast we could multiply that if people got their act together and really aimed at it. Because, you know, my, my experience is with people that we're probably running at about 51% of our capacity. Something, I mean, you can think about this yourselves. I often ask undergraduates, how many hours a day you waste or how many hours a week you waste? And the classic answer is something like four to six hours a day. You know, inefficient studying, Uh, Watching things on YouTube that not only do you not want to watch that you don't even care about that make you feel horrible about watching after you're done. That's probably four hours right there. Now you think, well, that's 20, 25 hours a week. It's 100 hours a month. That's two and a half full work weeks. It's half a year of work weeks per year. And if your time is worth $20 an hour, which is a radical underestimate. It's probably more like 50. If you think about it in terms of deferred wages, if you're wasting 20 hours a week, you're wasting $50,000 a year. And you are doing that right now. And it's because you're young, wasting $50,000 a year is a way bigger catastrophe than it would be for me to waste it because I'm not gonna last nearly as long. And so if your life isn't everything it could be, you could ask yourself, well, what would happen if you just stopped wasting the opportunities that are in front of you? You'd be Who knows how much more efficient? 10 times more efficient, 20 times more efficient. That's the Pareto distribution. You have no idea how efficient, efficient people get. It's completely, it's off the charts. Well, and if we all got our act together collectively, and stop making things worse, because that's another thing people do all the time. Not only do they not do what they should to make things better, they actively attempt to make things worse because they're spiteful or resentful or arrogant or deceitful or, or homicidal or genocidal or all of those things all bundled together in an absolutely pathological package. If people stopped really, really trying just to make things worse, we have no idea how much better they would get just because of that. So there's this weird dynamic that's part of the existential system of ideas between human vulnerability, social judgment, both of which are, 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 are major causes of suffering, and the failure of individuals to adopt the responsibility that they know they should adopt. And so if you act that way, of course, the terror of realizing that is that it actually starts to matter what you do. And you might say, well, that's better than living a meaningless existence. It's better for it to matter. But I mean, if you really ask yourself, would you be so sure if you had the choice? I can live with no responsibility whatsoever. The price I pay is that nothing matters or I can reverse it and everything matters. But I have to take the responsibility that's associated with that. It's not so obvious to me that people would take the meaningful path. Now, when you say, well, nihilists suffer dreadfully because there's no meaning in their life and they still suffer. Yeah, but the advantage is they have no responsibility. So that's the payoff. And I actually think that's the motivation. Say, well, I can't help being nihilistic. All my belief systems have collapsed. It's like, yeah, maybe. Maybe you've just allowed them to collapse because it's a hell of a lot easier than acting them out and the price you pay is some meaningless suffering, but you can always whine about that and people will feel sorry for you and you have the option of taking the pathway of the martyr. So that's a pretty good deal, all things considered, especially when the the alternative is to bear your burden properly and to live forthrightly in the world. Well, what Solzhenitsyn figured out and so many people in the 20th century, it's not just him, even though he's the best example, is that if you live a pathological life, you pathologize your society. And if enough people do that, then it's hell. Really, really. And you can read the Gulag Archipelago if you have the fortitude to do that. And you'll see exactly what hell is like. And then you can decide if that's a place you'd like to visit or even more importantly, if it's a a place you'd like to visit and take all your family and friends because that's what happened in the 20th century. You know we we don't live that long right and and we're really complicated and it's not easy to learn how to be a person you know i mean it takes you like 40 years before you can learn to be a person enough so that you can get out of your mother's basement so it's hard that's half your life before (laughs) well maybe not 40 but but certainly sometimes um it takes a long time to learn how to be a human being and and we're very, very complicated. We're, we're way more complicated than we can understand. You know, and we've been watching each other for a long time, watching ourselves, telling stories about ourselves, trying to draw some wisdom from our self-observations to teach to our children and to our grandchildren and so forth. And we've codified them in, in all sorts of strange ways in these memorable stories, fairy tales and myths and religious stories, all of those things. Um, and what are they there for? they're there to remind us who we are because we need to know who we are I I believe the most important idea that's ever been generated is the, the, the idea that men and women are made in the image of God I think that a culture that doesn't that isn't predicated on that belief knowingly or unknowingly and better knowingly is doomed to absolute catastrophe because there's no reason to assume that there isn't something about us that's of transcendent value I mean if, if for no other reason than the fact of our consciousness you know like here we are we're aware of, of what there is and it isn't even obvious that there could be what there is if there wasn't something that's aware of it. And so our, our very awareness is, plays an integral role in the fact of being itself. You know, and metaphysics aside, it's hard to see that anything could be more vital than that, more important than that. And then it isn't only that we apprehend reality, you know, and, and therefore give it, give it shape merely by our perceptions. It's also clearly the case that we partake in its shaping. And, and and we call ourselves on that. You know, you 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 know you know that you feel guilty and ashamed when you're not doing what you could be doing, when you're not living up to your potential, when you're not making the most of what's offered to you. You understand at a very deep level that you're that you're that you're what would you you're you're breaking. There's no other way of saying it. You're breaking a divine commandment. You're offered this unbelievably rich possibility, and it's there for you to grapple with. And, and you say, Well, I don't believe in such things, in, in the divinity of, of humanity, or in divinity itself, or in the divine for that matter. But you, you, you can't fool yourself with that kind of argumentation. It doesn't stop you from feeling guilty and ashamed and worthless and disappointed and frustrated and angry and vengeful at the fact that you're wasting your life and you're noticing it and that you're making yourself much less than you could be and that you're making things around you worse for everyone else. And, like, perhaps there's a psychopath or two in the audience who just doesn't give a damn and who is... Focused only on instantaneous gratification for their most primordial impulses this moment, right? But it's not a sustainable mode of being and it's very rare. And so, the purpose of religious ideas is to wake us up. It's to remind us who we are, right? It's to remind us that we're imbued with with a spirit that can be best described in some sense as immortal. It's, It's the spirit that allows all of us to be conscious, that we all participate in simultaneously, that gives rise to the world and shapes it. in order to have any positive meaning in your life, you have to have identified a goal, and you have to be working towards it, and there is a technical reason for that, and the technical reason, as far as I can tell, is that the circuitry that produces the kind of positive emotion that people really like, is only activated when you notice that you're when you're proceeding towards a goal that you value. And so that means that if you don't have a goal that you value, you can't have any positive emotions. Technically that's the incentive reward system and it's the underlying circuitry is dopaminergic and when that circuitry is activated then It's part of the exploratory circuit. It makes you it gives you the sense of being actively engaged in something worthwhile And that's you know you you tend to think of positive emotion as something produced by reward But there's two kinds of positive emotion one is the reward that's associated with satiation and that's consumatory reward and that's the reward you get when you're hungry and you eat But the thing about eating when you're hungry is that it destroys the framework within which you were operating, right? It's time to eat while you eat, and then that framework's no longer relevant. So the consumatory reward eliminates the value framework, and then you're stuck with, well, what are you gonna do next? And so the consumatory reward has with it its own problems, but the incentive reward is constantly what keeps you moving forward. And incentive reward, because it's dopaminergic also is analgesic literally analgesic. So if you're in pain, you take opiates and that that will cut the pain, but so will psychomotor stimulants like cocaine or amphetamines. And so it's literally the case that if you're engaged in something that's engaging and you're working towards a goal, that you're going to feel less pain. And you can see this happening with athletes who, you know, they'll break their thumb or something, or maybe sometimes even their ankle, and they'll keep playing the game. Of course, afterwards, they're suffering like mad, but the fact that they're so filled with goal-directed enthusiasm means that, well, the pain systems are, in some sense, shut off. So that's an interesting thing, because what it suggests, I mean, then you could imagine, I might say, well, how happy are you that you've made a certain amount of progress? And if you think about it, what you'd say is, well, it depends on how much progress and in relationship to what. So hypothetically, you're going to be happier if you've made quite a bit of progress towards a really important goal. And then you have to think through what it means for a goal to be really important because that's not obvious now you could say you're in this class and you're listening to some information and maybe there's two reasons for that you might find the information interesting per se but let's forget about that for a minute You need to listen to the information so that you can do well on the assignments, so that you can do well in the class. You need to do well in your classes so that you can finish up your degree. You need to finish up your degree so that you can find your place in the world. You need to do that so that you're financially stable and maybe you can start a family and have a life and that's all part of being a good person, something like that. And so that's a hierarchy of goals. And you might say that being a good person would be the thing however vaguely thought through, that's at the top of that hierarchy. And then when you're doing things that serve that ultimate purpose, then you're going to find those more meaningful. And that meaning is actually produced as a consequence of the engagement of this exploratory circuit that's nested right down in your hypothalamus. It's really, really old. It's as old as thirst and it's as old as hunger. It's really an old system. And so you want to have that thing activated. Speak frequently in your lectures about, I guess, the war between good and evil, or the struggle of life really is a struggle between good and evil being at the core of a conscious, lived existence. And I guess on that note, if you were 100% certain that there was no afterlife, would you still be able to preach that there's a positive meaning in life? If you were 100% certain some atheists seem to be 100% certain and yet they still preach that there's some positive meaning to life Would you be one of those or would you turn into Cain? You know so cynical. I Think that well as far as I'm concerned one of the things I learned from studying 20th century history is that like even if the idea that even if you take the most cynical of ideas, let's say that life is irredeemable suffering and and perhaps isn't even justified because of that it still seems to me that you have an ethical duty let's say to live in a manner that reduces that to the degree that that's possible and so and i think that that can be experienced as meaningful in some sense independently of the transcendent context now i don't exactly know how to strip off the transcendent context because One of the things I would say that's happened to me is because I've spent so much time looking at the horrible things that people have done is that it's Like Jung said that he he, when this is one of his famous quotes He said no tree can reach up to heaven unless its roots reach down to hell And so as I've dug deeper into the depravity of human beings My sense of the possibility of human beings has also grown What would you say in, in proportion? And, and Until I've become convinced actually that good is a more powerful force than evil even though evil is an unbelievably powerful force And so I can't really strip the transcendent away now whether what bearing that has on eternity say on an afterlife I mean, I I, I, I can't say anything about that The only thing I guess I can say is that there are many things about being that we don't understand in the least and We don't understand the nature of consciousness or the nature of time so I'm not I wouldn't despair about that. But yes, I think that life can still be meaningful without without There being a necessity of an afterlife So I might say well, why are you going to university? Or I might say what are you doing right now? And then the answer would be i'm sitting in class and then the question would be well why are you sitting in class and the answer to that would be well because i i want to take this course and why well it's because i want to get my degree why well because i want to be prepared for a career and a you know a productive and high quality life when i get out well why well you know you can keep saying why pretty much indefinitely and as you answer you go farther and farther out in time scales now it's a tricky thing because one of the things I might tell you, this is a very complex cognitive problem, is well, where should you stop? So for example, um, I could say to you, do you want $100 now or do you want 50,000 years in 75 years? You're going to think, well, I'll probably take the $100 now, well, how about in 200 years? It's like, well, I'm not going to be there, I'll take the 100 bucks now. Well, so obviously thinking out 200 years is not that helpful. Now, you might think, well, no, you should calculate the effects of your actions on a, the, va- the vastest time span possible, and include the largest number of people, if you're really going to equilibrate it, but the problem is you can't do the comput- computations, because you get, you get this thing called combinatorial explosion happening, which is that it's like a chessboard. You make one move, okay, fine. But then you could make four, and then with each of those you could make four more, and then with each of those you could make four more, and soon if you're looking twenty moves ahead, it's like there's so many moves that the other person could possibly make that looking that far ahead is pointless. You can't do the computations. And so we don't know how far you should look into the future. It depends on how stable your environment is. But one month seems okay. A year, yeah. Three to five years, that's what I'll have you do when you do the future authoring program. Twenty years? Hmm Probably not and the reason for that is the margin of error in your prediction grows so large that your prediction isn't worth anything And you can really see how that's the case now because like what's gonna be like in 20 years? When I was a kid I used to read science fiction. It's like plausible accounts of the potential future. It's like now Who knows? Anything could happen Anything could happen you know, you could be three quarters robot in 20 years. You could have a lifespan of 10,000 years. I mean, we just do not know. We could be living in caves again with everything in runes. We don't have a clue what's going to happen. So 20 year span, I would say, you know, get friendly with computers. <laughs> so 20 year span's too long. So, okay, anyways, what I'm what I'm pointing out is that you have to calculate, you have to calculate what you're doing across multiple spans of time and in that, combination, you know, in combination with many, many people, and that makes things very complex, but that's how, that's how you're building the structures that you live with. There's this thing that exists, this multi-headed snake, and it's got this infinity problem, it's everywhere, that's that little circle down there, and the problem is, well, what do you do with it? You cut off one head, seven more, grow. That's the eternal problem of life. And the problem is there, there, there is the category of problems in life, and it ain't going anywhere. And so the question is, can you deal with the whole category at the same time? That's the thing. That's how to be in the world is to deal with that category all at the same time. And so how did, how did human beings, what did they come up with as a solution? And that's so cool, too, because the solution they came up with not only was the heroism that allows you to approach. What you're terrified by and what you find offensive and to learn from it but also the idea of sacrifice and and that was played out by cultures everywhere including human sacrifice and you think what the hell was up with those crazy bastards so long ago they were sacrificing to gods all the time what kind of clueless behavior was that burn something and please god burn something valuable and please god it's like what was with them what were they thinking well they weren't stupid, those people. If they were stupid, we wouldn't be here. They were not stupid, and believe me, they lived under a lot harsher conditions than we do. So those were some tough people, man. You know, back then, you'd last about 15 minutes, and so you don't want to be thinking of your ancestors as stupid. Like, there's no real evidence that we're much different cognitively than we were 150,000 years ago. So anyways, sacrifice. What does that mean, sacrifice? Well. It's a discovery, man. It's the discovery of the future. It's like the future is actually the place where there is threat and it's always going to be there. So what do you do? You make sacrifices in the present so that the future is better, right? Everyone does that. That's what you're doing right now. That's what you're doing here. That's what your parents are doing when they pay money to send you to university. They think you can bargain with reality. It's amazing. You can bargain with reality. You can forestall Gratification now, and it'll pay off at a a place in time that doesn't even exist yet. It's like, who would have believed that? It's like, that's a miracle that that occurs. And it's not like people just figured that out overnight. You know, we were chimps, for Christ's sake. Like, how are we going to come up with an idea like that? Well, it's like, well, we thought about it for seven million years. And, uh, you know, we got to the point where we could kind of act it out. But we didn't know what we were doing. But it was a, it emerged like a dream. It was, so the terror of the future is a dream. And the solution to the terror, the dream of the terror of the future is another dream. And, and it, it comes out in mythology and in fantasy and in drama where you act out the sacrifice. And then it's a step on the way to full understanding. So we can say sacrifice now instead of doing it, you know. although we still do it. It's just not concretized like it used to be. We do it abstractly. and. We all have faith that it will work. You know, and we also set up our society so that it'll work. And one thing about, you know, I'm not a fan of moral relativism for, for a variety of reasons, partly because I think it's an, it's an extreme form of cowardice. But anyways, apart from that, no, 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 no. There's minimal ways that you can set up a society that will work. And so one of them is, is that the society has to be set up so that your sacrifices will pay off or you won't work and then the society will die. And so it has to make promises. People have to make promises to one another. And that's what money is. Money is a promise that your sacrifice will pay off in the future. That's what money is. And so if the society is stable, you can store up your work right now. You can sacrifice your impulses and you can work and you can store up credit for the future and then you can make the future a better place. But society has to be stable enough to allow for that. Hyperinflation will do you in. So the promise that's implicit in the currency is the promise that what you're doing now will pay off in the future. And if people don't have that promise, then, well, we know what they do. Because in in gangs, for example, in say gangs in North America, the time horizon of the gang member shrinks rapidly because they don't really expect to be alive much past 21. And so they get really impulsive and violent and like why the hell not that's that's what you do when when the future doesn't matter when it's not real you you default back to living in the moment and you take what you can get right now and no wonder because you don't know if you're going to be around in a a year and you get whatever you can well you can bloody well get it and that's like anarchy that state and so you don't want to live in some people like to live in that state because they're really wired for that you know and so they're they're much more comfortable in those conditions. They're they're kind of like warrior types, I would say, in some sense. But, you know, for most people, that's just wet. Well, that stress will just do you in, you know, the stress of a life like that. How hard should you work? Well, that's a really difficult question. If you're going to die tomorrow, and Then you probably shouldn't work very hard today at all So one thing you might say is that the degree to which you should work hard is Dependent on your assumptions about the stability of the future. We actually know this to be true because if you put people in <coughs> Wildly uncertain circumstances They discount the future which is exactly what you should do, right? It's only makes sense to store up goods For future consumption if the future is likely to be very similar to the past and the present you need a stable society for that and Conscientiousness only works in in a stable society because all you do otherwise if you're piling up goods Which is kind of what conscientious people do is leaving them there for the criminals to take or waiting for the next chaotic Upheaval to wipe out everything that you've stored and so even conscientiousness is a kind of guess hard-working people say well you know, uh, sacrifice the present for the future. That's great, as long as the future's gonna be there and you can predict it. But if it's not gonna be there and it's unpredictable, then the right response is take what you can take right now while the getting's good. Now, you know, obviously there are troubles with that too, and I'm speaking, you know, I'm, I'm offering rough rules of thumb, but I'm trying to provide you with some indication of how and why these difference in value structures exist, because. They're applicable in different environments, you know, sometimes in a dangerous social environment It's not obvious that being an extroverted person is a good idea because extroverted people they stand out Especially if they're extroverted and creative right because not only are they noisy and and dominant and assertive They're also colorful and and flamboyant and provocative Well, that's great if you're in a society that rewards that sort of thing, but if you have you know if you're ruled by an authoritarian king who wants absolutely no threat whatsoever to his stability ever then dressing in gray and shutting the hell up is a really good survival tactic